Bat in the boondocks Bat in the boondocks People put down But what you're supposed to do In a small town Bat in the boondocks Bat in the boondocks Lord have mercy Can't be in Bat in the boondocks Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. With you today, I am Stanley. And I'm Drew. And Tucker the Podcasting Dog is with us. me in my mouth. Well, do not sexually molest my dog. That's not. Oh my gosh. Now he's messing with the cords. Well, pick him up. Great Lord. Come on, Tuck Tuck. He doesn't like me. Just get him and give him to me. Come on, Tuck Tuck. Come here. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed our last episode with our guest, True Southern Belle, Jen. It was fun doing that. Today, we're going to do one on one with the both of us. Always, I really want y'all to get in touch with us. I mean, post something on, fa- on our Facebook page and email us something. Do something. I mean, we have listeners. We've just surpassed our 5,000 downloads. Well, we're about 5,500 now. But, um, we hear nothing from Mm y'all. It's like, it's a lot of corpses listen to us. Yeah, like like on YouTube, um, people that get like 5,000 listens, they get so many comments. And every other podcast talks about all the comments that they get. They have to remember. I'm going to get a new website started up. I don't like the other website platform. I'm going to do a new one. I just sent off our our stickers are going to be coming in. We have some really good-looking die-cut stickers. Yeah. And the first people that get in touch with us, remember, that's bad in the boondocks at att.net. Is it the – so did you um, change it? What? Like, did you, um, what's the new, is the new website still going to be called the same thing, or? Uh, I'll get to you on that. All right. But, email us, or put a comment on Facebook, but please subscribe, rate, and review also. But the first five people that send us a good comment are going to get free die-cut stickers with our logo and they are really cool they looking. They actually look pretty cool. They actually look better than pretty cool, but... Yeah. Anyway. All right. On with the story. This is 2020. I'm just kidding. All right. Tonight, we're going to do Carol Edward Cole. Okay. You ready for this? I guess. Dallas police are no strangers to violent death and det- Detective Gerald Robinson expected no surprises when he was called to examine a woman's corpse at 6 a.m. on Wednesday, November 12, 1980. The body had been found 45 minutes earlier on Bryan Street, an inner-city neighborhood of honky-tonk saloons, cheap lodgings, and greasy spoon restaurants. Tempers flared off in there, and the results were sometimes fatal. Robinson found the 
<laughs> the victim nude from the waist down. Her blouse was ripped open. Bruises was, were on her neck, su which suggested strangulation as the cause of death. Her torn slacks lay 20 feet away, hastily concealed in a clump of trees. Drag marks and abrasions on the woman's flesh showed that she had been hauled across dirt and gravel after she was killed and stripped. A driver's license in the victim's pocket identified her as 32-year-old Wanda Faye Roberts, residing five blocks north of the site where she was found. Post-mortem tests revealed no sexual assault, but they proved that Roberts had been drinking heavily before she died. Police scoured the Bryan Street bars and soon found one where Roberts was known as a regular. The bartender recalled her latest visit on the night she was murdered. Roberts had left the bar around 2 a.m. with another frequent customer known only as Eddie. Dun, dun, dun. Detective Robinson filed the clue but could do nothing with it. He needed a suspect, and there were thousands of Eddies in Dallas. There was nothing Robinson could do but wait. <laughs> Near midnight on November 30, 1980, 43-year-old Sally Thompson's two sons brought a girlfriend home to visit at her Dallas apartment. They saw lights burning in the living room and heard the TV playing, but the door was locked. Knocking and rattling the knob, they waited several minutes before a stranger opened the door. He was slender, average height, with dark hair and a thin mustache. He reeked of whiskey and appeared disoriented, but he offered no resistance as the boys pushed past him. They found their mother lying on the floor, face down beside the couch, with her jeans and panties wadded around her ankles. Frightened now, the boys fled to a neighbor's apartment and summoned police. Officers found the stranger beside, standing beside Thompson's corpse and looking him into custody. I mean, took him into custody without resistance. The man identified himself as none other than Carol Edward Cole residing just two blocks from the Thompson apartment. When questioned, he recalled meeting Thompson at a nearby bar and accepting her invitation to come home for sex. Cole had been undressing her, he said, when Thompson suddenly collapsed. Paramedics on the scene found no signs of violence on her body, suggesting possible death from an overdose of alcohol or drugs. Cole was detained until a medical examiner completed the autopsy, listing Thompson's cause of death as indeterminate, and then he was released. Detective Robinson reviewed the Thompson file next morning, noting that Cole Cole's middle name might be shortened to Eddie by friends. He also noted that Cole's lip... <laughs> what? Lemon... Lemon. <laughs> Lemon. <laughs> Lemon. <laughs> what? Lemon. Well, whatever. Lemon. Avenue address was a halfway house for felons on parole. Wait a second. He also noted that Coleslam Avenue address was a halfway house for felons on parole. Mm-hmm. 
where he was living. He was living at a house at a halfway house. Oh, okay. Sometimes after you get out of jail, you go oh, and live I see, at your right. I see, okay. okay. Located within two miles of the Wanda Roberts murder scene, a call to the halfway house told Robinson that Cole had arrived in Dallas on October 8, 1980, two days after his release from a federal lockup for mail theft. After missing curfew several times, he had left the halfway house on November 3rd, but called back to negotiate a second chance on the night Wanda Roberts was murdered. A further background check on Cole revealed an extensive criminal record, including a 1967 Missouri conviction for felonious... Felonious. Whatever. I'll say how I want to, okay? Felonious assault on an adolescent girl. That afternoon, Robinson led a team of plainclothesmen to pick Cole up at his workplace, a Toys R Us warehouse. In custody, Cole repeated his story about Sally Thompson and admitted a casual acquaintance with Wanda Roberts. They had quarreled the night she died, Cole said, but he had no idea who had killed her. In the midst of the interview, Detective Robinson was called to visit the scene of an officer-involved shooting. As if disappointed by the interruption, Cole launched into a murder confession, describing the death of a woman he'd met in a Dallas saloon. It took several moments for Robinson to realize the details fit neither Sally Thompson's nor Wanda Roberts' murders. This one, apparently, had been committed on November 9th, a swift records check identified the victim as 52-year-old Dorothy King, found dead in her apartment on November 11, 1980. Again, the coroner had blamed her passing on an overdose of alcohol. Returning from that errand. Returning from that errand. <laughs> what is that even? Oh, like an errand? Yeah. That's like, like an errand? or Like, like an, errand. an errand. Like, you know, a little... Like, go to the store and pick up some cigarettes. I thought it was Aaron. Aaron. I never knew that. You're really letting your hick show. <laughs> Shut up. Really letting them boondocks show. They really teach you good in our public schools. Yeah, I know they do. <laughs> Returning from that errand, Robinson decided to start from scratch. Now, about the girl in the bar, he began. Tell me about her. Cole frowned and replied, which one? Cole's litany of death consumed the afternoon and evening of December 1st, 1980. Detective Robinson took notes as the prisoner admitted to strangling Dorothy King, Wanda Roberts, and Sally Thompson. In each case, the scenario was nearly identical of a room. Bar room? Well, you know what? <laughs> These words get me really mixed up here. It's just a bar room. Well, you know what? I'm going to spell... Yeah, this spelled bar room. Never mind. <laughs> a bar room meeting. Promises of sex and Cole's hands clamped around a dying woman's neck. Nor were the Dallas murders isolated incidents. 
In fact, there have been six before them in the past nine years. All drunken sluts, by Cole's account. All strangled, some of them molested after death. In San Diego, he remembered three victims. The first was Essie Buck, a tavern owner strangled, stripped, and dumped outside the city limits in May of 1971. The second was Bonnie Sue O'Neill, a prostitute Cole strangled and discarded in the alley behind an appliance shop where he worked in August 1979. A month later, Cole's alcoholic wife, Diana, fell prey to his murderous rage. Her body wrapped in blankets and hidden in a closet of their home while Eddie hit the road. Las Vegas was another city where Cole had spent considerable time, and he had claimed two victims there. Part-time prostitute Kathleen Kathleen Blum Blum was strangled and dumped in a residential neighborhood during May 1977. More than two years later, in November of 1979, victim Marie Cushman had been left in the bed she shared briefly with Cole at the Casbah Hotel. The final victim on Cole's list was Merlene Hamer, nicknamed T.P., for her Native American roots. Who gets named T.P.? Merlene Hamer. Yes, Merlene. Strangled and dumped in a field outside Casper, Wyoming, her body was recovered by authorities in August 1975. When he ran out of names, Cole was booked into Dallas City Jail on three counts of first-degree murder. Despite his confessions, however, Cole still presented a problem for prosecutors. Local medical examiners had missed the cause of death on two of the three victims. And San Diego authorities told the press Cole had killed no one at all in their city. Deputy Coroner Jay Johnson told reporters, I don't believe there's anything to it while Lieutenant John Gregory, chief of San Diego's Homicide Squad, held a similar view. The coroner conducted through autopsies, Gregory declared, and the man would have to have been some sort of an expert to have strangled these women without leaving any bruise marks. Meanwhile, Dallas psychiatrist examined Cole to learn if he was fit for trial. Cole's blasé descriptions of murder and necrophilia unnerved them, but the doctors agreed that he was legally sane. Cole's trial began on April 6, 1981, before Judge John Meade, with Cole himself appearing as the sole defense witness. Under oath, he told a story of childhood abuse inflicted by his sadistic, adulterous mother, giving rise to a morbid obsession with women who betrayed their husbands or lovers. Quote, I think, he told the jury, I've been killing her through them. Details of the Dallas slayings were pretty fuzzy, Cole said, but he surprised the court by adding three more victims to his formal tally. The new crimes included two more women killed in San Diego and a victim slain in Oklahoma City on Thanksgiving of 1977. This one is a complete blank, Cole said, of the Oklahoma victim. He didn't know the woman's name, 
but Cole remembered finding pieces of the body scattered from the bathroom to the kitchen of his small apartment. Evidently, I had done some cooking the night before, he testified. There was some meat on the stove in a frying pan and part that I hadn't eaten on the plate on the table. Jurors had heard enough. Prosecutor Mary Ludwig blamed the cannibalism confession on Cole's tendency to grossly exaggerate and a wild bid for an insanity plea. The panel deliberated barely 25 minutes before convicting Cole on three counts of murder. Judge Meade spared his life with a sentence of life imprisonment on April 9th, 1981. Now, Carol Edward Cole was born at Sioux City, Iowa in May 9th of 1938, the second son of Laverne and Vesta Cole. A sister followed in 1939 before the family moved to Richmond, California. Laverne, seeking work in the local shipyards, drafted to serve his country in World War II, Laverne would be absent when his younger son's life took a sudden and bizarre turn for the worse. One day, in 1943, as Cole recalled, his mother took him with her to visit an unfamiliar apartment. There, she met soldiers engaging in drunken sex while Eddie waited in the squalid parlor with strangers. Afterward, at home, Vesta beat Eddie and twisted his arms, threatening worse if he ever revealed her transgression. The excursions were repeated, each capped with increasingly sadistic punishment, until his father returned home at war's end. According to school records, Vesta kept her whipping boy at home until age seven, when by law he should have entered first grade at age six. Oh. Oh, I just got it. This is the backstory. Okay. <laughs> wars. Wars end. The wars the war end. Has ended? Yeah. Okay. If you continue reading. That's good, okay. The war has ended, and his father's return brought relief of a sort, but only by a matter of degree. Vesta still harassed and punished um, Eddie over the slightest infraction, and he had also begun to suffer at school. Playmates teased him mercilessly about his girl's name, often leaving him in tears. The kids make quite... Oh, Lord Almighty. I'm messing up on some of these. The kids made quite a thing of taunting me, Cole later recalled. I felt the animosity withdrawing more and more into myself. One afternoon, hiding beneath the porch at home, Cole briefly blacked out and awoke to find he had strangled the family's puppy. Strangely relieved by the act of killing, he began to fantasize about killing his mother, or for that matter, any female who crossed his path. Despite those lethal daydreams, Cole's first murder victim would be male. The boy, an ass from school named Dwayne, quoted by Cole, was one of those who taunted Cole relentlessly about his name. 
One summer afternoon in 1946, Cole joined his brother and a group of other boys to go swimming at Richmond's Yacht Harbor. Dwayne was part of the group, and they had barely reached their destination when he resumed the tired old litany. How does it feel to have a girl's name, Carol? <laughs> they were alone, with Cole in the water and Dwayne crouched on a nearby log, preparing to spring. He held his nose and jumped. Cole tracked his progress from a trail of bubbles, moving to intercept Dwayne. As Dwayne tried to surface, Cole clamped his legs around the other boy's neck, bracing his hands against the nearest log for leverage. I held him under till I knew he was dead, Cole later wrote, and when I let him go, he just sank. Oh, man, I can't, I mean, I don't blame him, honestly, like. Honestly, I mean, I don't really, maybe beat him up, not kill him, honestly. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I would have probably hit him with a stick first before I drowned him. Drowned him. <laughs> drowned? drowned him. Thank you. Um. Yeah. Authorities dismissed the drowning as an accident. <laughs> do you have a problem? With I do. Breath? Your breath is really kicking it is today. Not. <laughs> You're such a liar. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. This room ain't big enough for that. Oh, whatever. Get out of here. No, you need to air it out. Are you serious? Well, then turn... Quip Toothbrush really needs to uh, sponsor us because you could use it. It doesn't even smell. I Bull. just smelled it. I can't, there's nothing Obviously, there. that sinus surgery didn't do anything. Would you like to go get me... Would you like to get me some gum? That ain't going to help that. Yeah, it would. Have you been eating dog crap? No, have you? No. Whatever. I will continue. Why don't you just face that way so that you can't smell anything then? I will. But I know that you're just faking it. Are you done? Continue. Whatever. <laughs> Authorities dismiss the drowning as an accident. <laughs> Though Cole spent several months... In fear of imminent arrest, I was afraid of the police with reason, as I thought. But there was no remorse about Dwayne, Cole said. I hated him, and I was glad I stood up for myself. It was the first time, but it would not be the last. The thrill derived from murder is a temporary fix, like any other powerful narcotic. Homicidal violence satisfies the sense for a time but the effect soon fades and when it does a predator goes hunting if i thought my life was going to improve cole said of killing Dwayne, i was sadly mistaken neither at home or at school i was getting meaner and meaner fighting all the time in a way to hurt or maim and my thoughts were not the ideas of an innocent child believe me Cole masked his morbid fantasies to a degree in elementary school and junior high, but they began to take a toll. An IQ test administered in February of 1953 ranked Cole at the genius level of 152. Of course. But his like, a lot of, like a lot of killers, they're normally way high IQs and stuff like that, but then they sucked at school. Well, because they just didn't care about doing the work. 
didn't help. But his grades scraped along that semester at a D-plus average. By high school, he was burglarizing liquor stores and drinking heavily, finally dropping out entirely in the middle of his junior year. Cole worked briefly at a Richmond factory, then joined the Navy in February of 1957. Drinking and theft of government property sent him to the brig, but it was a San Diego arrest on suspicion of burglary and auto theft that finally got Cole discharged on August 4th of 1958. You know what? But like... A lot of serial killers go to the Navy or the Army. I feel like they need to stay there, honestly. I mean, like, join there and get sent over and start killing people, and then that'll control your urges. And Yeah. Thank you for that. Maybe you should write the government. Exactly. What? For reasons he could not explain, Cole returned to his parents' home in Richmond and endured a new round of abuse from his mother, rubbing his nose in the latest abject failure. Cole remained with his with the family, working odd jobs and logging various minor arrests until June 1st, 1960. That night, Prowling a local lover's lane, he approached two couples in a parked car and attacked them with a hammer. Convicted of assault with a deadly weapon on June 28th, he was sentenced to 30 days on the county work farm. Wow. Now that's a that's a sentence. 30 days for trying to kill somebody. With, with a, a hammer. hammer. With a hammer. Th- oh, and on a work farm. I mean, that sounds a little nicer than jail, even. That doesn't even make sense. In January 1961, Cole flagged down a Richmond police car and told the patrolman of his urge to rape and strangle women. Several phone calls later, the officer suggested voluntary self-committal to a mental hospital. Cole entered Napa State Hospital on February 2nd, 1961, for 90 days, observation and treatment. He wanted help but dared not mention Dwayne's murder and could not bring himself to discuss Festus' cruelty. Reports from Napa record Cole's fantasy of a happy childhood, noting that he talked about both of his parents in rather glowing terms. Vesta confirmed the lie when she was interviewed by Dr. R.C. Hitchin, another psychiatrist. Dr. L. M. Jones described the final meeting where staff members discussed Cole's case. It was felt by some that he was a possible sexual psychopath, potentially dangerous to the community. Staff made a diagnosis of antisocial sociopathic personality disturbance. Lord almighty, that's a long long thing. On March 21st, and recommended that he be discharged. Not suitable, not mentally ill, and recommended that he apply for outside psychiatric help or voluntary admit 
admission to Antuscadero State Hospital because of his sadistic, abnormal sexual tendencies. What? What was that state hospital again? Antuscadero. What did I say? Ant or something other. Antuscadero. I see you still turning your head, so I'm going to go get me some gum. <laughs> that quick. would be great. I'm going to go get some gum since I, you really think that, it's, that it really Did you pass gas? Shut up. No. Well, oh, my God. This dog did. What the crap? Tucker. He always God. does that. No, I still think it was you. Napa Staffers released Cole on March 25th of 1961. While serving a six-month sentence for auto theft that July, Cole repeated his plea for psychiatric help. Judge Raymond Coughlin signed the committal order on October 6th, and Cole entered Atascaraba State Hospital ten days later. Doctors there found his test results very puzzling and contradictory. Dr. Irwin had diagnosed, heart diagnosed Cole as a very passive dependent person with a facade of independence and confusion concerning sexual identification. Cole was transferred to Stockton State Hospital for further testing and treatment on September 12th of 1962. There, Dr. I. I. Wace noted that he seems to be afraid of the female figure and cannot have intercourse with her first, but must kill her before he can do it. West said, diagnosed Cole's condition as a schizophrenic reaction, chronic, undifferentiated type, and released him on April 19th of 1963 with an indefinite leave of absence to self. Here you go. I've got some gum for you because you might need it. I don't, but thank you. Upon his release, Cole noted that his family was solid. Solicitous. <laughs> Why would I know that word, though? We don't learn that. Why would we ever learn that crap? You also don't learn errand. Obviously. Well, solicitous. To some extent, but they were really wishing I was elsewhere. Brother Richard had moved to Dallas with his wife in Texas. Was suggested for a change of scene. Laverne bought the bus ticket in May 1963, and Eddie headed south. Cole later recalled that his brother spent the next few weeks showing him around Dallas through bar and tavern windows. Soon he was able to find the saloons and the women they attracted by himself. On July 5th of 1963, despondent over a failed attempt to strangle a woman he met in one dive, Cole attempted suicide with pills and spent four days in a psychiatric ward. Soon after his release, Cole met Neville Billy Whitworth, an alcoholic stripper whom he described as neurotic and unstable, just like me. It was the ultimate codependent relationship, complete with raging violence on both sides. Cole and Billy married on 
in November of 1963, soon after her part-time employer, one Jack Ruby, murdered the alleged assassin of President John Kennedy. The marriage was chaotic from day one. Lust and anger fueled by alcohol interrupted by arrest for drunkenness and domestic violence. It came to a head in August of 1965. Cole convinced that Billy was servicing men at the motel where they lived. Furious Cole set the place on fire and was indicted for arson on August 19th. Convicted and sentenced to two years of imprisonment in March of 1966. He served nine months and was released on January 5th of 1967. Tired of Billy and their wasted life, he started drifting aimlessly, his travels marked by a series of arrests. An Oklahoma court fined him $20 for vagrancy by pimping in April of 1967. What does that even mean? Vagrancy by pimping. He was yeah. like he was pimping out somebody. What? He was pimping out a woman. You know what a pimp is? Oh. Okay. All right. A month later, he invaded the bedroom of an 11 year old girl in Lake Ozark, Missouri, and tried to strangle her as she slept. Her scream summoned help. And Cole was captured moments later by police facing 10 years in prison on a charge of felonious assault with intent to ravish. The public was so aroused, Cole recalled, that in another time frame, I would doubtless have been taken out and lynched. Instead, he, instead, he <laughs> pled guilty to a reduced charge of assault with intent to kill and received a five-year prison term. He was paroled on May 1st, 1970, entirely unrepentant. If anything, he later admitted, I was worse. Cole drifted back to San Diego, then to Reno, Nevada. Twice he tried to strangle women, met in bars, but his victims escaped both times. On September 19th, 1970, he surrendered to Reno police and confessed his urge to murder women. Detained on a charge of disorderly conduct, Cole was committed four days later to a state hospital at Sparks, Nevada. There, Dr. Felix Peebles diagnosed Cole as an antisocial personality with alcoholism, with compulsion to strangle and rape pretty females. By October 13th, that diagnosis had changed to brand Cole a highly manipulative young man who was utilizing his difficulties with the law in the past and his threats of violence upon others to find shelter when he is out of funds or ways to get what he wants. Dr. Peebles ordered Cole released with the following notations in his file. Condition of discharge on discharge. The same as on admission prognosis, poor under disposition, Peebles noted. He was discharged and placed on an express bus for Los Angeles where he was to change buses and go to his home in San Diego, California. Eddie wasn't cured, 
but he was someone else's problem now, and he had given up on seeking help. Naming San Diego as his home was a strategic move on Cole's part. As a border town, he later wrote, it was wild and practically anything goes. Also, being in California, it's easy to get on welfare, and his record with the state hospitals qualified him for more disability. Cole played the game to a point, training as a nurse's aide, but he was appalled by local hospital conditions. He said, have you ever seen a patient eaten up with bed sores because someone didn't care enough to do their job? And the verbal abuse was something else. I often thought of waylaying one of those nurses in the parking lot, killing her for the old folks. But unfortunately, our classes were in the daytime. Instead, he transferred his aggressions to others. After three flings at psychiatry, Cole noted, that his urges were stronger than ever, but he wasn't concerned about it anymore. He just said to hell with it and waited to see what would happen. On May 7, 1971, he met Essie Buck in a San Diego tavern and strangled her in his car, leaving her body in the trunk overnight. The next morning, Cole remembered that he felt nothing. He didn't feel elation, guilt, or any of the feelings thought to appease someone like him. Just cold nothing. He discarded the body on May 9th, his 33rd birthday. Two weeks later, Cole would claim he met another hard-drinking woman known only as Wilma and strangled her after a night on the town. He buried her corpse in the foothills outside San Yezurio, where it remains undiscovered un <laughs> today. His third victim, a week after Wilma, was killed and buried in similar fashion. If Cole knew ever knew her name, he had forgotten it years later when he penned an account on of the murder from prison. In June 1971, while serving time for theft and drunk driving, Cole was questioned by San Diego homicide detective Robert Ring. Essie Buck was mentioned, startling Cole. He admitted sleeping with her on the night she died, but claimed... He would. He woke next morning to find her dead of unknown causes beside him. Cole had dumped her body in a panic, he claimed. It was far-fetched, Cole wrote in 1985, but Ring bought it. Cole was released on schedule in March of 1972. A short time later, hunting, he drove to San Isidro on the Mexican border. Cole picked up two Hispanic women in a bar and took them for a ride, a few miles outside of town to drink more beer, but Cole had other plans. When one woman slipped away to relieve herself, classy lady, he bludgeoned her companion with a hammer, then strangled the other upon her return. Afterwards, he buried both women in the desert, two more victims who were never found. In the summer of 1972, shortly after his release from jail on yet another drunk driving charge, Cole met an alcoholic barmaid named Diana Paschal. They soon moved in together. Although neither was monogamous, Diana's infidelity rankled, reviving memories of Cole's mother. But it did not stop him from proposing marriage in July of 1973. 
The union was nearly as tempestuous, tempestuous, sorry, tempestuous as his first, and Cole celebrated their first anniversary by fleeing to Nevada with a girlfriend. Diana forgave him when Cole returned home a month later in August 1974, and they agreed that no good would come out of their relationship in San Diego. They picked Las Vegas on a whim and left to start a brand new life. For Cole, things were about to go from bad to worse. Nothing improved for Eddie and Diana in Las Vegas. They drank as much as ever, and both still had wondering eyes. Despite his ex-con statutes, Cole soon found a job transporting coins from slot machines at McCarran Airport to downtown casinos. Status? I thought there was statutes, like, you know, like statues, like statutes, you know what I'm saying? Status. It's status. Great Lord That's another one of them words they don't teach you. Good Lord of my <laughs> The lore of Easy Cash proved irresistible. And Cole soon fled with the day's receipts, leaving Diana behind as he set off on a rambling cross-country jaunt. I think that's right. While working old rigs at Casper, Wyoming in August 1975, Cole met Marlene T.P. Hammer. He noted the wedding ring on her finger and Hammer's seeming disregard for what it meant. After hours of drinking, they went for a drive to find some privacy. Hammer had suggested sex, but Eddie wanted something else. He strangled her in the car and left her on the grassy hillside, covered with an old sleeping bag. Her corpse was found by police in, on August 9th, and Cole left town the next day heading west. Back in San Diego, Cole stayed briefly with Diana, then wound up in a local detox center after one of his drunken binges. Worse troubles followed when he stole a $1,500 government check from one of his fellow patients and tried to cash it for himself. Charged with mail theft in June of 1976, he jumped bail but was soon recaptured and slapped with a new charge of unlawful flight. Conviction on both counts earned him a one-year sentence in February of 1977. Paroled in April, he fled black. Yeah. <laughs> he fled back to Las Vegas. Did he uh, fled black? He did. Okay. We're not racist though. Not on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Paroled in April, he fled back to Las Vegas, a federal fugitive. A month later, he strangled prostitute Kathleen. Blum and dumped her body in a stranger's backyard. Wouldn't you love to just wake up one morning and see that? Not really, but... Detectives had... Your cup of tea? (laughs) Aren't we so British? (laughs) (laughs) Detectives had no leads in that case, and Cole stayed in town long enough to be jailed for car theft in North Las Vegas on July 19th of 1977. Cole made bail, then skipped his September court date and made his way to Oklahoma City, Nevada. Nevada authorities waited until December to swear out a warrant for Cole's arrest. Too late to apprehend him. 
or to stop him from killing again. On the night before Thanksgiving, sitting in an Oklahoma City topless bar, oh yeah, getting frisky with it. Getting frisky with it. Da na 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 na. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I was doing a turkey for Thanksgiving. What are you doing? <laughs> I was doing a chicken. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Do your best turkey voice. <laughs> Mine is. Yeah, I'm through goblin. <laughs> Cole met a woman who agreed to spend the night with him. Somewhere in the middle of our making love, he later wrote, the booze kicked in. Do you really think they were making love or maybe just screwing? I mean, I assume just screwing, but... I mean, he didn't meet her at a topless bar. Exactly. But you know. Or else my mind went blank. I can't say which. He wrote at sunrise on November 24th, to find the woman dead in his bathtub, both feet and right arm severed and missing. Jesus Christ. How do you just miss it? You know, how does it just go missing? <laughs> how should I know? I mean... Oh. It just disappeared. Had to be somewhere. Yeah. Cole found these remnants in his refrigerator. And that's where it was. <laughs> exactly. While a steak sliced from the corpse's buttocks lay in a skillet on the stove. Doesn't that sound just delicious? It gives though? a new meaning to eating some ass. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Where? <laughs> what a... <laughs> Using kitchen knives and a hacksaw, he finished the dismemberment, placing her remains in plastic garbage bags and drove them to the city dump where he where they... Presumably were burned that day. He later wrote was something else. That day was something else. Let me tell you. Yeah, that's probably how he said yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, but it wasn't then. Was it not? No, no. Okay. From Oklahoma City, Cole drove to Texas and found work at Denver City. Unfortunately, the town was dry, which means no alcohol. But that didn't stop Cole from drinking whatever alcohol he could find. He was soon arrested for public drunkenness, which would be mighty weird in a dry town. Exactly. And a fingerprint check revealed that he was wanted in California as a federal fugitive. I bet you you might become a criminal. That way, at least you'd be wanted. That was so stupid. That was good. <laughs> One week later, Cole was headed back to San Diego wearing chains. On March 8th of 1978, Cole received a six-month jail sentence plus three years probation, contingent on full-time employment and participation in an alcoholic rehab program. They want me to send me to rehab, but I said no, no, no. Jeez. North Las Vegas dismissed his bail jumping charges on Cole's 40th birthday, and Cole was freed on June 16th of 1978. Soon after his release, Cole reunited with Diana. They got along fine, but he was sleeping on the couch for several days until she finally invited him into the bedroom. 
Probation notwithstanding, Cole kept drinking and skated from one part-time job to another. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This dog's going insane. I think I'll just put him down. Yeah, maybe. What did you do to him? I didn't do anything. Yes, thank you, Lord. I didn't do nothing. Yeah, you got the other piece of gum to stick in your mouth. I told you that first one, your mouth burned up, didn't it? (laughs) I'm going to do a true crime podcast on your breath. Because that is definitely a crime. (laughs) Shut up. You stupid. He was jailed for, wait, where am I? Oh, yeah. He was jailed for drunkenness on October 25th. 25th. Slapped with another probation violation, then released on a $2,000 bond. Police arrested him again on November 8th, but neglected to inform his probation officer. A federal hearing in March of 1979 continued his probation, while Cole continued his drinking and trolling for victims. On August 27th, 1979, Cole met Bonnie Sue O'Neill in a local bar. And took her back to the appliance shop. Now, that is classy. I swear. Where he was temporarily employed. Years later, Cole recalled their tryst as a night to end all screwing. That is classy. Okay. But it ended when O'Neill mentioned a need to phone her husband. Cole strangled her on the spot and dumped her body out back throwing her clothes into a nearby garbage bin. Speaking in 1985, Cole and his former employers agreed that police on the case never came to the shop or questioned any of the staff. Cole's marriage was on its last leg by that time. On September 17, 1979, he strangled Diana at home, wrapping her body in blankets and stowed it in a closet. A neighbor called police eight days later to report Cole scrabbling around beneath his house. Patrolman found him in the crawl space working on a grave-sized excavation, and they drove him to the local detox center. By the time he was released next morning, Cole's mother-in-law had found Diana's corpse in the house was crawling with police, but he eluded them and caught a bus to Las Vegas. In fact, he had nothing to fear from San Diego authorities. Autopsy results pegged Diana's blood alcohol level at four times the legal limit, and her death was attributed to alcohol poisoning. The only person looking for Cole so far was his federal probation officer, a bench warrant for his arrest was issued on September 27, 1979. In Las Vegas, Cole found work as a truck driver for a religious charity, picking up donations of clothing and other secondhand items. Newly single, he began dating a female co-worker, and while the relationship led to his third marriage, it never prevented Cole from picking up women in bars. One of them was Marie Cushman, who accompanied Cole to the Casbah Hotel on November 3rd of 1979. 
He killed her there and left her body in the room to be discovered by a maid next morning. Curiously, an article in Las Vegas Review Journal described two suspects in Cushman's murder. One was an unidentified 50-year-old man, 5 feet 2, with gray hair. The other, described as a Casbah desk clerk, was an Indian in his 30s, about 6 feet tall, with short, wavy black hair. Driving in, driving a Chevrolet, sorry, I'm just kidding, Chevrolet, <laughs> with California license plates. Neither bore any resemblance to Cole, and the false leads left police stimmied. Married in Las Vegas on December 16th of 1979, Cole took his beautiful bride to Texas for a long-term honeymoon, because everything's bigger in Texas, baby. <laughs> he was stopped for driving without a valid license in early of January of 1980 and might have escaped with a warning, but a computer name check turned up the federal bench warrant held as a persistent violator, <laughs> violator of probation. He wound up in Springfield, holla, Missouri, though. Yeah, it was Missouri. <laughs> We ain't from Missouri. At the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in August of 1980, Al. What? Dr. A.E. Miller filed the following report. There is no evidence of psychosis or neurosis in Mr. Cole. Diagnostically, he may be described as a character disorder. It is unlikely that major personality changes will occur. He does not appear motivated for any sort of treatment at this time. Despite that judgment, (laughs) Cole was released on October 4th of 1980 and bussed off to Dallas where he would murder three more women by November the 30th. Tell us about that reckoning. Yeah. So tell us. <laughs> Cole's murder confessions in Dallas rang bells in Las Vegas, where Detective Joe McGuckin. McDuckin! McDuckin loved that McChicken! What? He heard the news. Ow! And bu- that, you know what? That's what you <laughs> That dog is really he biting me. He needs to bite the crap out of you. You deserve it. What are you doing? You don't worry about that. You do you. Whatever. I will do me. Thank you very much. I'm not the only one doing you. (laughs) 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 He heard the news and booked a flight to Texas on December 3rd, 1980. His interview with Cole convinced McGuckin that he had solved the homicides of (laughs) Kyle. Oh, Kathleen Blum and Marie Cushman, but knowing the killer was not the same thing as bringing him to justice. Texas has had coal on ice for a 25-year minimum, making it doubtful that he would ever face trial in Nevada, unless Cole himself collaborated in the effort. What are you doing with... Okay, well, so right now... I'm looking over it, and I'm seeing him lifting the dog up. By my sock. With the dog biting 
on his foot, and he's lifting them up in the air. Not only is he a podcaster, but he's about to work for Cirque de Soleil, baby. People don't even know what that is. I'm sure that they do. Okay. Maybe nowhere around here. Yeah, probably not. They'd be like, Cirque de Soleil. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie, meanwhile, had other plans. In November 1982, after nearly two years inside, he began plotting an up unscheduled exit from the Texas State Prison at Huntsville. By now, he later wrote, escape was my only thought, and I began to put an elaborate plan in effect. He stole food coloring to dye his white prison uniform a less prissy uniform. hue. His prissy uniform. This prison uniform. Oh, prison. I thought you said this little prissy. God, I got hiccups now. That was a burp, not a hiccup? I know, but hiccups call. You were the one that passed gas earlier. Shut you just up. admitted. You just Quit said. blaming it on me. It was not. Good. God, man. Where? Oh, Lord. Where? <laughs> In Tabasco. Sauce for his shoes to throw tracking dogs off the scent. Tabasco sauce. Shut. Are you for real? Your mouth. No. Yes, Tabasco sauce. He put them on his shoes so that the dogs can't track his scent. Good lord. Or he could have just farted like you did. Shut up. Angling for a transfer to the prison garden crew, he planned to overpower a guard, take his weapon, and run as if his life depended on it, which it might, considering the temperature. I, why would I just say temperature? Because <laughs> you're trying to be all spicy. No, I'm not. I'm trying to, to read and hurry up. Well, then you can leave out. The temperature. The <laughs> dumbass. Why do I keep saying temperature? The temper of the guards. you the new DA. The Good new Lord. dumbass, not the district attorney. <laughs> On the eve of his planned escape, Cole was injured in a prison wood shop accident and transferred to a new facility. His plans all gone for nothing. In January 1984, <laughs> Cole received a letter from California advising him of his mother's death while he actually cares. A month later, on February 5th, Nevada... 15th! Does it really matter? Yeah, it's kind of a fact. Well, you know what? I'll Maybe you could have stopped. 15th. Nevada authorities formally announced their intent to extradite Cole and try him on capital murder charges. Cole waived extradition on March 30th, 1984, and Las Vegas detectives were sent to fetch him on April 9th in Louisville of... And what? Oh, in Lou? Lou of escape? What? In trying to escape. Could we not just put in trying to escape? I didn't know that we were going to share this Who story. Who actually know? A lot of people. A lot of people. A lot of people. Well, I doubt anybody around here. And that's not who I'm talking to. Cole had decided he would rather die. Hmm, that's not the only thing, maybe. What? Nothing. Nevada prosecutors were anxious to oblige. 
a psychiatrist and examined Cole in May of 1984, and two more in July. All agreed that he was sane and competent for trial, and on August 16th, Cole appeared before Judge Myron Leavitt and pled guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. Attorney Torn Pitaro, appointed as standby counsel over Cole's objections, protested Cole's attempt to commit legal suicide. Yeah. Cole had a simpler, more direct perspective. He believed in capital punishment. He didn't see where Petrol was going to come up with the stuff for an insane because there was nothing good about him. Cole's penalty hearing convened in, on October 12th of 1984 before a panel of three judges. Judge Levitt was joined for the occasion by colleagues Richard LaGarza and Norman Robinson. District Attorney Dan Seaton called as witnesses detectives from Las Vegas, Dallas, Missouri, and Wyoming to confirm Cole's admissions of serial murder. Two officers from San Diego also testified, but their confused descriptions of the several cases in their city added nothing to the presentation. Cole capped the testimony with his own on October 12th, reminding the judges that Within about five or more years, he would be eligible for parole in Texas. And, if not that, that he would get very ample chances to escape from the Texas Department of Corrections. The panel took Cole at his word and sentenced him to die for Marie Cushman's murder. Execution was barred in Kathleen Blum's death, since Nevada had no death penalty in May of 1977. It hardly mattered, though. In Cole's case, one death sentence was enough. Cole was transferred from Las Vegas to Nevada State Prison at Carson City on November 6, 1984. Ironically, that morning brought an announcement from the warden's office that the prison's death chamber, out of service due to gas leaks for the past five years, was once again open for business. State legislators had saved themselves a $20,000 repair bill by voting for lethal injection in 1983, and the changeover was finally complete. If Cole died on schedule, he would be Nevada's first inmate to get the needle. I don't. I don't, I think that the gas chamber should have kept in. I feel like they suffered a little more, and I'm sorry. But if you are sentenced to death, like just wait, wait, wait. I feel like you should suffer because the victim suffered. Don't put a whole lot of gas in there. Just put a little bit. Or just let you go in there for ten minutes. Because you passing. You are for the next eleven months. Cold doggedly resisted all outside attempts to file appeals on his behalf. The attempts were fewer than expected in light of his crimes, as most civil libertarians balked at defending a confessed serial killer and cannibal. Nevada Supreme Court affirmed Cole's death sentence on October 22nd of 1985, and Judge Levitt convened a hearing three weeks later, fixing the date of execution as December the 6th. Cole had just three weeks to live. He spent the time quietly, contemplating a handwritten autobiography... Completing completing. a handwritten autobiography that ran some 100,000 words. 
granting permission for a Las Vegas neurosurgeon to study his brain after death. You know how long that is. Mm-hmm. Because this right here is 5,938 words. Jesus Christ, that's a lot too, though. <laughs> so 100,000 would be a lot. But on December the 4th, he was moved to a 7 by 7 foot last night cell. Do you know how tiny that would be? About the size of this room. No. 7 foot by 7 foot. That is actually very small. Very small. It's like twice the size of downstairs on me. Just kidding. Ah. Anyway. Um, he was under 24-hour suicide watch to prevent him from cheating the state. The next day, three other death row inmates filed an appeal with the state Supreme Court on Cole's behalf, declaring him legally insane, but the court rejected their petition in a special nighttime session. You going to finish this off? Oh, and I don't mean that the nasty way. Why don't you shut up? At 1.43 a.m. on December 7th. Okay, I'll finish this. No, I've got it. Shut up. <laughs> Cole entered the execution chamber before an audience of selected witnesses. By 2.05 a.m., he was strapped to the table with needles inserted in both arms. Warden George Sumner signaled for the execution to proceed. A lethal cocktail of chemicals flowing into Cole's veins on command. His body convulsed at 2.07 a.m. and then relaxed. The prison's physician pronounced him dead three minutes later. Emerging from theater of death moments. Like, what? Huh? Emerging from the theater of death moments later. Dan Seaton told the TV cameras, It is enjoyable to see the system work. Unfortunately, in the case of Eddie Cole, it took four decades, 16 wasted lives, and countless dollars to complete the job. And that is Mr. Carol Edward Eddie Cole. Come on, y'all. We remember, send us some, send us some feedback. Send it on Facebook or send it, if you can. I don't even know if you can on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know. If, can they put? Can anybody post something or just us? You can comment. Yeah, I know that you can comment. Comment. So comment on Facebook. The first. Like our page. The first four people that comment on Facebook are gonna yeah, receive sticker. Bad in the Boondocks logo die cut sticker that looks totally freaking awesome, and y'all will be the first ones to have it. You can stick it anywhere. You can stick it anywhere you want. Stick it on your head. Stick it on your arm. Stick it on your foot. Stick it on your butt. Ooh, Ooh. You can stick it wherever, but we prefer to stick it where other people can see it. Oh, we like seeing you stick it. Later. It's our own average. See ya. Bye.